Welcome to the Law with DK Williams. Giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. And welcome back to the Law. I am DK Williams, and this is episode 71. And we're going to discuss a 1974 United States Supreme Court case called the United States versus Richard Nixon. Now, don't confuse this case with the case we discussed in episode 54, which was a 1993 case from the Supreme Court. And that was Nixon versus U.S. This is U.S. versus Nixon. The names are juxtaposed and they involve different Nixons. I think keeping them in historical context is a good way to distinguish them. That 74 case, which we're talking about today, involves Richard Nixon and his Watergate controversy. The other one from 1993 involves a federal judge and his impeachment. And like I said, we talked about that in episode 54. Very important as to how impeachment works and the powers of Congress. The House in impeachment and the Senate in removal of office, they have complete authority, which means the judiciary has none. But this Nixon case from 74 deals with the president's assertion that he does not have to comply with a subpoena seeking, in this particular case, recordings and other documents about the Watergate break-in and subsequent cover-up. As always, The Law is brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas, and you can subscribe to The Law and other Speakeasy Ideas podcasts through your favorite podcast app and at speakeasyideas.com. Just search for Speakeasy Ideas and you'll find them. And if you go to speakeasyideas.com slash the law, all of the podcasts are there as well. Well, most of them are there. We're still working on getting some of the archives up, but before long, then all of them will be available. Also, to stay in the loop, follow this podcast on social media, Twitter at TheLawDKW, and on Facebook.com slash TheLawWithDKWilliams. Want to hear from you, and if you're so inclined, we'd love for you to like, share, etc., etc. And on that Facebook page, if you could leave a review, hopefully a good one, but hey, whatever you feel, this is America, that would be great. We've got uh, some positive reviews on there. Well, all the ones that we have are positive, so that's great. Add your voice. That would be great. I'm available for speaking engagements, consulting and teaching. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details. Likewise, contact Bethany if you'd like to contribute to our work here at The Law with D.K. Williams via a sponsorship. All right, so in this case, we've got Richard Nixon as one named party and the United States government as the other. In this case, the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, has to decide if the president must comply with the subpoena from a special prosecutor investigating the events surrounding the Watergate break-in, subsequent cover-up, and conspiracy. So, while all of this is going on, no one knows the complete extent of the cover-up and the break-in and everything else. Looking back on it now, we know what happened. But this case is about the process of finding out what happened. So, this was an 8 to nothing unanimous Supreme Court decision. They rejected Nixon's generalized claim of immunity from responding to the subpoena, and he had to turn over the documents and recordings that were requested from him. And 16 days after this case was decided, Nixon resigned. So this case was pretty much the last gasp of the Nixon presidency. And I think it's noteworthy to mention that it was 8 nothing. Three of the justices that voted against him, they all voted against him, 
Three of them were appointed by Nixon himself. And there were two other Republican nominees. Ike had two of the other ones. So five of these eight justices were Republican nominees, three of them by Nixon himself. Now, the ninth one was William Rehnquist, who recused himself. He did not take part in this case because he had been uh, an employee of the attorney general's office and knew several of the people actually named in the indictment from the attorney general's office. Chief Justice Warren Burger wrote the opinion for the unanimous court. And we will get into those details because you know how important it is to read these cases if you really want to know what is going on in them. I do my best to lay it out, but don't ever let anybody tell you that you don't need to read them to know what they're about. Not if you really want to know. So what happened in this case? How did we get here? So let's go to the words, actual words of the opinion, where Chief Justice Burger writes, This litigation presents for review the denial of a motion filed in the district court on behalf of the President of the United States. Insert hail to the chief music there. The motion was denied, requesting a third-party subpoena be quashed, a third-party subpoena Ducey's Tecum, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So this third-party subpoena Ducey's Tecum was issued by the United States District Court for the District of Columbia, appropriately enough since that's where the White House is, pursuant to Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 17C. The subpoena directed the president to produce certain tape recordings and documents relating to his conversations with certain aides and advisors. The court rejected President's claims of absolute executive privilege and some other arguments. We, the U.S. Supreme Court, granted petitions for certiorari, and that's where we are. So what is a subpoena ducis tecum? Most people are probably familiar with the concept of the subpoena, the ducis tecum part of it, and that's two words, Latin, obviously, D-U-C-E-S, ducis tecum, T-E-C-U-M. In English, it would be a subpoena for production of evidence. Court summons, ordering the recipient, whoever it's been served upon, to appear before the court and produce documents or other tangible evidence for use at the hearing or trial. And law students will sometimes pronounce the tecum part as tecum as a reminder that the subpoena ducis tecum, mispronounced, means that if you have some papers and are served with one of these subpoenas, you must take them with you. Ducis tecum. But that's not really how you pronounce it. It's ducis tecum. So in a normal subpoena, you just have to show up and testify. You add the Ducey's tecum part, and you have to bring documents or tape recordings or some other particular tangible evidence with you. So back to the court's description. On March 1, 1974, and quick aside, this a Supreme Court opinion was released in 1974. This was a very expedited case because of the issues involved, and the court felt it was imperative to deal with it quickly. So on March 1, 1974, a grand jury of the United States District Court for the District of Columbia returned an indictment charging seven named individuals with various offenses, including conspiracy to defraud the United States and to obstruct justice. Although he was not designated as such in the indictment, the grand jury named the president, among others, as an unindicted co-conspirator. First, who are the seven named individuals in the actual indictment? Because Nixon wasn't indicted. There's a whole issue about whether or not you can indict the president, and we'll mention that. But the seven named individuals, you may have heard of some of them. John Mitchell, H.R. Haldeman, John D. Ehrlichman, Charles Colson, Robert Mardian. I'm guessing on the pronunciation of that one, because that one I don't know. Mardian, M-A-R-D-I-A-N. Kenneth Parkinson and Gordon Strachan. 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 Strahan. That's spelled S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N. According to the court, each occupied either a position of responsibility on the White House staff or a position with the committee for the re-election of the president. 
And I think most of them ended up writing books after they got out of jail. So these seven were indicted conspirators. What is an unindicted conspirator? Like the president here was an unindicted co-conspirator. And co-conspirator and conspirator are identical. They're, they're synonyms. So you'll see them both used. Since I'm a fan of not using unnecessary letters, I'll try to just stick with conspirator. So an unindicted conspirator is a person who's identified by law enforcement to have engaged in a conspiracy, but who is not officially charged, not criminally charged in the indictment. There's tactical, practical, political reasons the government may choose not to indict a conspirator. And that's where this term became well-known, this unindicted conspirators. And here you had the issue of whether or not you can indict a president. I submit that you, you, you probably can't because that's the entire purpose of impeachment. If you want to get rid of the president, you impeach him. If you impeach men, remove him, and then he can be indicted. But leaving open the possibility of an indictment while he's a president, I think the intention of the Constitution is that that would be something to be avoided. I mean, just think what would happen if some local DA somewhere with a desire for publicity and a dislike for whoever happened to be in the Oval Office wanted to indict the president for something. I mean, I'd say it's likely, but it would be possible if, if it were legal. And it doesn't have to be legal, and I don't think it is. Got a problem with the president? Impeach him remove him. If you want to charge him with criminal activity, got to do it after he's done. So the president here will serve a subpoena ducis tecum. So again, we go right to the words. What does that say? Rule 17c in pertinent part as it exists now, and I'm not sure how or if it has changed since 74, but I think the basic idea is still there. Producing documents and objects. In general, a subpoena may order the witness to produce any books, papers, documents, data, or other objects the subpoena designates. The court may direct the witness to produce the designated items in court before trial or before they are to be offered in evidence. When the items arrive, the court may permit the parties and their attorneys to inspect all or part of them. Quashing or modifying the subpoena, which is the part that becomes relevant here. On motion made promptly, the court may quash or modify the subpoena if compliance would be unreasonable or oppressive. And that's what Nixon is saying here. And even beyond that, he just doesn't have to do it because he's the president. And he's got a legitimate argument, and we'll talk about it. So back to the court, court's language, Chief Justice Berger. This subpoena required the production of certain tapes, memoranda, papers, transcripts, or other writings relating to certain precisely identified meetings between the president and others. So Nixon moved to quash the subpoena and made a, quote, formal claim of privilege. The district court denied the motion to quash, ordered an in-camera review of the documents and the objects subpoenaed. In camera just means private in his chambers. So it's not going to be made public. He's going to look at it and see which part of these documents and everything else that's been subpoenaed can be turned over or should be turned over or must be turned over to the prosecutor. So when his motion to quash his subpoena was denied, some procedural stuff went on and it got up to the Supreme Court on an expedited basis. They made their 8-0 decision against the president. So let's go over the rosters of the Supreme Court members involved in this opinion. You've got Chief Justice Warren Burger, one of the guys nominated by Richard Nixon. Again, how awkward would that be? He was nominated in 69 by Nixon and he retired in 86 and he lived another 13 years after he retired, and I just like pointing that out because it seems like right now we've got some justices that are never going to retire. And in the past, most of them did. Most of them retired, did some other stuff, and fished or whatever. So Berger retired, lived another 13 years until the age of 87. And just by way of comparison, RBG Ruth Bader Ginsburg is currently 86 and has been on the court since 1993. So we're coming up on 27 years. That's a long time for any job. 
Berger went to the University of Minnesota and then St. Paul College of Law. And I just point these things out because I like to point out how many Ivy League elites are currently on the Supreme Court and to note that it has not always been so. Chief Justice Warren Berger, not an Ivy League elite. So that's cool. Also on the court in the unanimous decision, William Douglas, who was nominated by FDR. You're thinking, whoa, FDR? This case was in 74. How long had he been on the court? Well, a long time. He'd been on the bench 35 years when this case became an issue. So Douglas was nominated in 39. He's like as old as Yoda. And he retired the following year after this case came out in 75. Lived another five years, passed away at the age of 81. He went to Whitman College and then Columbia Law School. So as far as law school goes, he is an Ivy League elite. And of course, I must always point out that Columbia Law School is in New York and not in Columbia. Also on the court, William Brennan, nominated in 1956 by Eisenhower. Brennan retired in 1990 after he'd been on the bench for 34 years. He lived another seven years after he retired, did some fishing, reading, playing with his grandkids or whatever, passed away at 91. So he went to Penn undergrad and then Harvard Law, put him in the elite column. Potter Stewart, also on the opinion, our know-it-when-I-see-it guy. Remember him? We talked about Jacob Bellis versus Ohio. He was nominated in 58 by Ike. He ended up retiring in 81, lived another four years, died at the age of 70, which is pretty young for these guys, it seems. He attended Yale undergrad and law, put him in the Ivy League elite category. Then we got Colorado's own Byron White, who had been nominated in 62 by JFK. He ended up retiring in 93, so 30 years plus for him. After he retired, lived another nine years, died at the age of 84, went to Colorado, of course, where he played football, then Oxford and Yale Law. Hate to do it. Got to put him in the Ivy League elite category, even though he went to the University of Colorado. Oxford and Yale Law. Yale, Ivy League, Oxford. Can't get more elite than that. Third good Marshall on the court as well, nominated by LBJ in 67. He retired in 91, lived another two years before he passed away at the age of 84. He attended Penn undergrad and then Howard Law School, so props to him for that, for not being in that elite category, that Ivy League Law School elite category. Harry Blackman, nominated by Nixon. Awkward again in 74 years before this case came to issue. He retired in 94, so he was only in the bench for 24 years, relatively short time, I say tongue-in-cheek. He lived another five years after he retired, died at the age of 90. He attended Harvard twice. Lewis Powell, also nominated by Nixon. How awkward. He was on the bench from 72 to 87 when he too retired. He lived another 11 years and again passed away at the age of 90. These guys are healthy and live a long time. He went to Washington and Lee undergrad and then Harvard Law School. So three of these eight justices were nominated by Nixon, and they all joined the opinion that basically ended his his presidency. Nixon resigned, like I said, 16 days after this decision. Nixon also nominated Rehnquist, which we mentioned, but he recused himself, as we mentioned. And two others were nominated by Ike. So that's five of these eight justices were nominated by Republicans who voted against this Republican president. I point this out because partisan politics rarely come into play in Supreme Court decisions. Now, differing philosophies certainly do, but not partisan politics, I submit. So back to the meat of the case. The court spends a few pages on jurisdiction. It's an important issue, but for our purposes, mostly boring. Suffice it to say they find jurisdiction, otherwise they wouldn't have made a decision on the merits. One of the arguments the president makes is that this dispute is between different parts of the executive branch and is therefore not subject to judicial resolution. The argument goes that since the executive branch has exclusive authority and absolute discretion whether to prosecute any case, it is contended by Nixon that a president's decision is final 
and determining what evidence is to be used in a given criminal case. Therefore, the argument goes, the judiciary had no say in this. It's a separation of powers argument, and I think it has some merit, but the Supreme Court disagreed. Think about this. If a a local elected DA is being investigated by someone in his office, I mean, if someone in his office would have to prosecute it, that would be a conflict, right? And if if the elected DA didn't like it, he could fire his assistant DA. So who would investigate and prosecute? Maybe the state attorney general, maybe an independent prosecutor from another part of the state. However, that might be resolved. There really is no comparable procedure regarding the president. There's no higher government to appoint an impartial person, and there's no other office of which he is not in charge. But there is something that applies to the president uniquely, and that is impeachment. Supreme Court then gets into everybody's favorite federal issue, the administrative state. Supreme Court points out that there's a federal regulation promulgated by the attorney general's office that, quote, gives the special prosecutor explicit power to contest the invocation of executive privilege in the process of seeking evidence deemed relevant to the performance of these specially delegated duties. That is an important concept. The Supreme Court says, so long as this regulation is extant, one of my favorite words, it has the force of law. As long as the regulation exists, it has the force of law. Exactly. Remember that. Some people will say regulations aren't really laws. Well, they have the force of law right there. Boom. And this applies to all regulations, not just this one involving the special prosecutor in 74. And it is a major problem with the administrative state. We discussed it in episode 27 when we went over the Chevron case. And in episode 65, when we discussed Justice Neil Gorsuch's book, because it's an issue he goes into deeply. And in sum, the administrative state combines the legislative, judicial, and executive functions into one bureaucratic body. Combining all three of these powers into one entity defeats the very foundation of the checks and balances in the Constitution. But as we said, we talked about that in those other cases. But then get this part. The Supreme Court held that, quote, so long as the attorney general's regulations remained operative, as long as they were extant, right, he denied himself the authority to exercise the discretion delegated to the board, even though the original authority was his, and he could reassert it by amending the regulations. Okay, that's in the opinion. So why doesn't he just amend the regulations, right? He should be able to just Send out a memo. Hey, dudes, my regulations are changed. Boom, they're changed. I don't know why that happened. I'm sure some historians very familiar with the situation, the case, do. I can only assume they considered it for whatever reason, probably political calculus. They didn't go with that. They went with this. And the Supreme Court specifically says about this regulation that is extant. Here, it is theoretically possible for the attorney general to amend or revoke the regulation, which I was just talking about. But he has not done so, which is interesting. Court goes on. So, at issue is the production or non-production of specified evidence deemed by the special prosecutor to be relevant and admissible in a pending criminal case. Because remember, the criminal case is not against the president. It's not Nixon. He's unindicted. It is against people that were in his administration or on his re-election committee, both of whom the president had recorded conversations with that were relevant to the criminal investigation. And those were the subjects of the subpoena. Supreme Court lays out the issue pretty well. The evidence is sought by one official of the executive branch within the scope of his express authority, those regulations that are extant, 
It is resisted by the chief executive, the president, on the ground of his duty to preserve the confidentiality of the communications of the president. The independent special prosecutor, with his asserted need for the subpoenaed material in the underlying criminal prosecution, is opposed by the president with his steadfast assertion of privilege against disclosure of the material. So that is the conflict. The court gets into a discussion of the federal rule, Rule 17C, and they quote it, a subpoena for documents may be quashed if their production would be unreasonable or oppressive, but not otherwise. And this rule is used every day in probably every courthouse in the country. So this is a rather pedestrian discussion of how to apply that rule. Applying this rule of evidence is not a constitutional question, but they have to deal with it in this context. So the Supreme Court agrees with the district court that it was applied correctly. Then they move on. They say, having determined that the requirements of Rule 17C were satisfied, we turn to the claim that the subpoena should be quashed because it demands, quote, confidential conversations between a president and his close advisors that it would be inconsistent with the public interest to produce. The court says this first contention is a broad claim that the separation of powers doctrine precludes judicial review of a president's claim of privilege. The second contention is that if he does not prevail on the claim of absolute privilege, the court should hold as a matter of constitutional law that the privilege prevails over the subpoena. And get this, we've discussed this concept before as well. The quote says, In the performance of assigned constitutional duties, each branch of the government must initially interpret the Constitution. That is huge. And the interpretation of its powers by any branch is due great respect from the others. And this is so important, and this concept comes up when we've talked about it. The president is supposed to look at legislation that's passed Congress. And if he thinks it's unconstitutional, he has a responsibility to veto it. And if legislators are voting on legislation that that legislator believes is unconstitutional, it is his or her duty to not vote for it. But what's happened is, with, for example, H.W. Bush signed the McCain-Feingold Act, and in his signing statement said, this is probably unconstitutional, but I'm going to let the court sort that out. That is an abdication of his responsibility. And then, I mean, there's so many examples of Congress doing this. They don't even care what the Constitution says. great example of it is, is when Pelosi was asked by a reporter what part of the Constitution authorizes the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. She laughed and said, are you kidding? I mean, the question was absurd to her. It shouldn't have been. It's only part of her constitutional job. So it's clearly the province of the judiciary to discuss constitutionality, but it's also the duties of the executive and the legislators to consider whether or not something is constitutional. But what the Supreme Court doesn't say here, and they should, are it is should be noted that this is also the duty of the states, perhaps even more so. So even if the federal government passes something that's unconstitutional, the executive signs it and the judiciary sustains it. If it's still unconstitutional, the states have a say on that. And I know you'd, oh my goodness, how that's anarchy, Dave. Well, the Alien and Sedition Acts, which criminalized criticizing the president, should not have been enforced by the states. And that's what Jefferson and Madison said. It should not have been. It's obvious that that's unconstitutional, regardless of what everybody else says. So the states are another bulwark against unconstitutional acts. The Fugitive Slave Law, another one. States did refuse to cooperate with federal agents. They refused to abide by the Fugitive Slave Law, when they had to turn over alleged escaped slaves. Japanese internment, another one, where states should have and 
some tried to, some state agents tried to, not cooperate with Japanese internment. Those are absolutely the legitimate responsibilities of the states to do as well. And we discussed Korematsu. That was a Japanese internment case in episode 51. So those are just some examples. It's not just the three branches of federal government that decide what's constitutional, and each has a duty to make that decision separately from the other branches. It's also the state's duties to do that. And there's a knee-jerk reaction against that idea, but it happens every day. This whole concept of these sanctuary cities not cooperating with immigration officials, that's them doing what they think is right. States legalizing marijuana, same thing. Because there is no legitimate federal constitutional basis to criminalize a plant that is grown, harvested, produced, sold, and consumed in one state. That is an intra-state activity. So states are right to tell the feds, go pound sand on that. And more of them should. And more of them are. The court goes on. However, neither the doctrine of separation of powers, nor the need for confidentiality of high-level communications without more, can sustain an absolute unqualified presidential privilege of immunity from judicial process under all circumstances, which is what Nixon is arguing. The president's need for complete candor and objectivity from advisors calls for great deference from the courts. However, when the privilege depends solely on the broad, undifferentiated claim of public interest in the confidentiality of such conversations, a confrontation with other values arises. Absent a claim of need to protect military, diplomatic, or sensitive national security secrets, we, the Supreme Court, find it difficult to accept the argument that even the very important interest and confidentiality of presidential communications is significantly diminished by production of such material for in-camera inspection, private inspection by a judge, with all the protection that a district court will be obliged to provide. So they basically are throwing it out right there. They're throwing out Nixon's claim. Then the Supreme Court gets into an analysis that relies on the Aaron Burr treason trial. It's cited at least three or four times. Now, I have not read that one yet, and I plan on doing it. I've downloaded it. It is over 200 pages. It's on my list, if only for historical purposes. I read uh, Gore Vidal's historical fiction on Burr, and I think reading the actual case would be fascinating, and almost as long as the novel. Perusing the case, it looks like it includes a lot of the evidence presented and argument, and is much more than just modern judicial opinion. It's like a narrative of the entire thing. So that would be interesting. But I digress. The court goes on. In this case, the president challenges a subpoena served on him as a third party, Remember, he's not a defendant. Requiring the production of materials for use in criminal prosecution of other people. Now, he knows it's damning to him, and that's why he doesn't want to turn it over. But he's not a defendant. So he challenges this on the claim that he has a privilege against disclosure of confidential communications. He does not place his claim of privilege on the ground they are military or diplomatic secrets. As to these duties, the courts have traditionally shown the utmost deference to presidential responsibilities. So if he was asserting military or diplomatic or national security issues, the courts would be a lot more likely to go along with it. In this case, however, we, the U.S. Supreme Court, must weigh the importance of the general privilege of confidentiality of presidential communications in performance of the president's responsibilities against the inroads of such a privilege on the fair administration of criminal justice. So yeah, he's got a claim to not turn stuff over, but we also have to look at and weigh how that would affect the fair administration of criminal justice. And y'all know how I feel about courts weighing competing interests, weighing 
I submit, is much more akin to legislation than the application of law. Legislators weigh competing interests all the time. That's their job. It's the very nature of legislation. It should not be a part of judging. At least the goal should be to minimize it as much as possible. And I think the Supreme Court adopts weighing contests far too often. And the court points out that on the one hand, the ability for the president to be able to discuss topics freely with his advisors is important. On the other hand, they say, quote, the allowance of the privilege to withhold evidence that is demonstrably relevant in a criminal trial would cut deeply into the guarantee of due process of law and gravely impair the basic function of the court. Now, I find this passage troubling. The allowance of the privilege would cut deeply into the guarantee of due process of law. The guarantee of due process is for individuals. It is for defendants. It is not for the government. And here it is the government who wants the information. I find the application of the concept of due process completely inappropriate here. The court says, we, the U.S. Supreme Court, conclude that when the ground for asserting privilege as to subpoenaed materials sought for use in a criminal trial is based only on the generalized interest in confidentiality, it cannot prevail over the fundamental demands of due process of law Again, they're doing it again. In the fair administration of criminal justice, the generalized assertion of privilege must yield to the demonstrated specific need for evidence in a pending criminal trial. So the next time this comes up, what is the obvious incentive for a president to do? The president now has an incentive to claim that military or intelligence or national security or diplomatic secrets are involved. Now, what if they're really not? What if he's making that up? Then what? I don't know. I don't know what would happen there. But it seems to be something like somebody like Richard Nixon might have attempted. And now they've got more of an incentive to do that. Hopefully none of this will ever happen again. So after this, the courts basically said, no, Richard Nixon, you lose. The court discusses the procedures and safeguards the district court should and must employ in its in-camera private inspection of the materials that have been subpoenaed. Court says, we have no doubt that the district judge will at all times accord to presidential records that high degree of deference suggested in United States versus Burr. Here again, back to that case. And will discharge his responsibility, the district court, to see to it that until released to the special prosecutor, no in-camera material is revealed to anyone. And there you have it. After this unanimous 8-0 decision, which included three of Richard Nixon's Supreme Court appointees and two other Republican appointees. Nixon resigned 16 days later. This case is important in that it limits the president's ability to claim executive privilege unless there's some kind of national security issue involved. This holding may or may not become an issue in this upcoming election and political atmosphere, which has become extremely partisan. And if it does, you'll know all about it because you just listen to the law. I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been episode 71 of The Law, United States versus Nixon. This is a case that rejected President Nixon's claim of absolute privilege from having to turn over his tapes of conversations with indicted members of his staff and re-election committee. We are brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. Let me know what you think. Go to Twitter at The Law DKW. Follow me there. Hit me up on Twitter and also on Facebook.com slash the Law with D.K. Williams. Want to hear from you? I'm available for speaking engagements, consulting, and teaching. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details and if you want to sponsor our work here at The Law. And until next week, 
Freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously.